Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? The Victorian era is named after Queen Victoria. She became Queen of England in 1837, when she was only 18 years old. Victoria ruled until she died in 1901, after 64 years as Queen. When Victoria became Queen of England and the British Empire, the Empire was quite big, spreading across the Americas, South Africa, India, and Australia. At the time of her death, the British Empire had expanded significantly. In Victorian England, your identity was made up of three things. Your race, your gender, and your class. Well, hello. And we are here, and this is Box 39 with me, Bill Lawrence. And this episode, we travel back in history to examine Victorian Britain. In fact, Victorian Colchester. Because during the 19th century, Colchester's population more than tripled. It saw the arrival of the railway and the establishment of a permanent military garrison. The Victorian era brought with it sights familiar today, including new industry that shaped our town for years to come and rows of terraced housing on the outskirts of the town centre that remain standing and well used today. It was an era that witnessed the spectacular additions of both Jumbo Water Tower and Colchester Town Hall, dominating the town centre. And at the other end of the high street, of course, Colchester's Castle Park was established with its typically Victorian decorative bandstand. So alongside me for the show are my co-presenters, Jonathan Pearsall, historian and blue budge guide, and also Mike Harwood, author, poet and writer. And we look forward to you, our listeners, joining in too with your texts and emails. So come on, let's kick off our investigation of Victorian Colchester as we open Box 39 once more. with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. 
are all very welcome to Box 39 tonight, our magazine of music and community humour and chat coming live from here, Studio One at Cone Radio Towers, and we're on 106.6 FM, and of course we are broadcasting to a potential 7.8 billion listeners. Now I'm here with Mike Harwood and with historian Jonathan Pearsall, so I can welcome them both. Let's start with you, Jonathan, sitting opposite me with the red microphone. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, great to meet you all. Great to meet you. Great to have you back. Uh, you've been with us before. And uh, on the uh, black microphone tonight, it's Mike Harwood. Hello, Mike. Hello there, and good evening all. And uh, we, of course, are investigating Victorian Colchester. Well, in the mid to later Victorian era, uh, sort of, uh, there was a lot of developments in local government, and this including creating gas and water supplies as public services, and that happened in Colchester as well, and some slums were cleared, and sort of city park systems uh, were brought in. So how much of that really happened here in Colchester is the first big question I'm going to be putting to our panel of experts. So we sort of accept today, don't we? We've got water and gas and sewage and education and museums and libraries and all those things, open spaces. So uh, how come that we've got those things in Colchester? Jonathan? Well... Well, I want to talk about, well, I have to admit that I'm a bit of a nerd on some of this uh, <laughs> utility stuff, where we call them now water and gas and so on, but I uh, hope you bear with me a bit. But, uh, well, water in Colchester, supply of water, we, we take for granted water without any question at all. And yet, for in, the, in the 19th century, mid-19th century onwards, things improved, but before then, things were pretty bad. It's worth remembering the Romans were bringing water into the town about 2,000 years ago, so so, uh, in a way, the Victorians are catching up. And they, so, they, so, where were the Romans bringing the water from? Oh, they brought it from uh, springs down to the north of the town, down Balkan Hill, and they pumped it up uh, from the bottom there. They also had an aqueduct running from um, Gosbeck's through into the town, roughly where Jumbo is at the moment, actually, right. which is the most sensible place to have it. What a difference might that one must have made to people to have... Fresh running water. That's right. I mean, uh, previously they, they relied on springs and wells. It wasn't always hygienic, the water. It was a hazard. It had uh, cholera. It was not unknown in British towns. Yeah. So it was uh, a move forward when, um, in 1808, the Colchester Water Company was established, which was the... Um, Really the first time, as Jonathan says, uh, attempt to provide the regular water supply. And uh, steam pumps were used to supply it up to the centre of Colchester, as you say. So they had a steam pump. And we sort of say, oh, they just use steam pump. But that in itself is a major thing to develop, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what, yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, you can't forget all these different things that happen at the same time. Yeah. S- development of steam engines for steam pumps, steam en- for trains and so on it's quite amazing really it all came together really yeah because uh, for the steam pump of course you require a bit of fire not known for our coal mines around here so so we're having to import that and i suppose that well yes i mean what's interesting how they got it here because uh, it must have come by ship because the railways weren't here but would have come up the river cone to the hive which um, remained in a place of importing coal right until the into the 20th century So there's a bit of a tale there. Some of you might remember the last shipment of stuff in the Hythe uh, port was coal during the miners' strike. But uh, that's another story. There's a sort of of synchronicity in there, isn't there? So so they've got the water supply uh, and it's being pumped by massive great steam pumps from from various places. Who's in charge of all this, Mike? Who's who's looking after it? Who's got the legal responsibility for this? I guess it uh, it, it came upon the Colchester Borough, really, um, who were given the legal responsibility uh, for public health and water supply in 1880. Okay, so that's quite late, isn't it? I mean, it's not that long ago. No. So until then, it would have been private companies. Yeah, private companies. I mean, this one founded in 1808 was a private company, and people Mm. would also uh, get it from the... still drawing it from their wells and so on, but it it was very much a private activity, but obviously it could be dealt on a town-wide basis, so the borough council stepped in on it. That was 72 years later as well. Well, So if you were poor, you you had less chance of being clean and healthy, even in Colchester. 
Well, that's it. Basically, yeah. it's a relationship between that. Yeah. Mind you, I think some of the wealthy, you know, they could they could get cholera as well. You know, it's, uh, it's so, not quite as, uh, <laughs> as cut and dried as that. But definitely, if you you know if you're poor, you certainly suffer more from lack of water, clean water, dangers of, of ill health, and so yeah. on. So uh, we've got the clean water coming in at last. But how are we getting rid of uh, all the dirty materials we don't want? How are we getting rid of sewage? Let's talk sewage. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's uh, a big stink there. Yeah. It was a nationwide problem, wasn't it? Um, due to the growth of towns and threats to public health again, found in Colchester. So the, so the, the, the government, 1875, wasn't it, they made it compulsory, the Public Health Act. Yeah. What, how did, uh, where did the sewage works uh, begin? Where, where did they put one in Colchester? Oh, I don't know, because it's still uh, evident as you go through there, unfortunately, for the wrong <laughs> reasons. Um, as the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, but it was in the highs. In 1884, a new sewage works was built there. Same location as today. And, uh, in fact, the vicar of St. Leonard's um, has shown some concern about the smell and how it might affect his parishioners. So some things don't change. Well, yeah, I think that's the problem. It, it, it does stink down there. But, I mean, it, it's probably better than that as it was before, you know, where people yeah. got there. Where do the human waste, you know, cesspits and night soil collectors and so on? But anyway, what I could suggest then, I suppose, that one of the things that would, uh, you know, uh, hopefully take away this horrible smell is some of their cooking. So maybe they'd make some some nice stews, maybe some boiled beef and carrots. Yeah. Boiled beef and carrots, boiled beef and carrots. That's the stuff the adobe kill Makes you fat and it keeps you well They live like vegetarians On food they give to parents From morn till night Blow out your kite on boiled beef and carrots
is it precisely that's in the box? Well, we are precisely in the box. It's us. It's myself, Bill Lawrence. I'm with Jonathan Pearsall and Mike Harwood, and we're talking about Victorian Colchester. So we've, we've had a look at the basics of life, the water and the sewage and the gas and the electricity, and we've seen where they've come from and how they developed. But the Victorian era also saw sport becoming uh, sort of um, much more brutal, perhaps, uh, far, far less brutal, rather, and far less <laughs> random. <laughs> rules were formalised when there was a time of rules and regulations an organisation of sport and administration. We got our administrators that we now love so much in the FA and the cricket. And it was it was organised nationally as well. And of course the empire spread. Many sports were introduced across the world. So you've got new sports evolving as well and spectating as well becoming a pastime as a whole new work and leisure life balance with the Industrial Revolution. So sports changed, Jonathan, hasn't it? Well, I think that's right. I think the thing is you touched on about the sport and uh, work balance I mean it's all very trendy now that sort of thing at the moment but the Victorians on to it early on they recognise the importance of, of recreation or open air walking around parks and so on and um, you know ever since then God knows how many PhDs have been written about you know how important <laughs> it all is but the Victorians are there already so that's reflect, reflected in the development of sports in cultures different clubs and so on the parks and so on uh, Castle Park wonderful place we have in Colchester, yeah. so certainly it's uh, but sport was a big thing, and I guess we'll talk a bit about Colchester United at some point, yeah. but there are other things as well um, well, rugby running, athletics golf and all started to evolving as a sports which the ordinary person could not only participate in, but could watch that was yeah. important, wasn't yeah, it? I, I, mean, I, I they've think got so. their Sunday, uh, Saturday afternoons free. I think that's a big step forward. Yeah, that's right. They had the Saturday afternoon off, and yeah, it was a great event. And I, I think generally that was a big step forward. Yeah. Which, I mean, uh, football's very popular. You grew up with football, didn't you, Mike? I certainly um, did, yeah. yeah. I think we all, all did, really. Mm. Um, it was a Saturday event way back. It's now any night of the week, and it's dominated by TV. I suppose that's, a, that's yeah. the modern version of it. Um, but back in those days, it was local, uh, local uh, uh, branches and, and national uh, administrative groups, like the FA was formed, wasn't it, as a national that's group right. and so on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, loads of, you know, a lot of these teams grew out of church teams or clubs set up by some of the big companies and so on. So different sources of, of where they came from. Yeah. But you said gradually became regularised, as, as it were. Mm. Well, certainly football. Um, when I was uh, supporting Portsmouth, when they won the uh, league for two years in 1951-52, not in the Victorian times, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, there was a lot of debate about uh, professional or amateur and uh, there was uh, strong support for amateurism reflecting, uh, was that uh, reflecting British class snobbery or? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's riddled with it. It's not much better now. Yeah. It's, I'm sorry, I'm getting this bit of a hobby horse here. Am I allowed to talk about hobby horses? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's still with us now. Have you ever noticed when they list the names of players who play rugby, it's, it's usually A.K. Smythe Brown. But if they put the football players just, Jones, Brown, Bill—they yeah. don't even put the Christ They didn't put the initials. So, yeah. rugby's a classier game, you know, yeah. than football. So, about the same time, they were developing all these things. We talked about the electricity and the gas. That's yeah. about the time that the FA was formed, eighteen eighties. Yeah. Uh, most of the clubs that started uh, were coming, as you say, out of out of work. Um, obvious companies like the Woolwich Arsenal that later became the Arsenal uh -huh. uh, the uh, iron foundries down on the Thames which uh, is where the irons the, the hammers yeah. uh, West Ham came from uh, come on you irons never heard yeah. of them are they the cotton <laughs> player no I never heard of them have you mate? <laughs> <laughs> not until uh, I met you Bill <laughs> <laughs> well let's uh, let's um, another thing that was, of course was very popular in those times was smoking so let's uh, let's have a look at the end of my old cigar <laughs> Take 
Christmas is the golden landlord at the star. Said here's a Christmas box for you and nine for this cigar. I smoked it up till Easter, then me dear devoted wife said, Why don't you throw the end of guy? Said I'm not on your life with the end of your cigar. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. I told a piccadilly and the fancy I'm the shah. It isn't because I'm handsome all the time, my lardy da. I tickle the people's fences with the end of your cigar. The wits and Monday we all toddled to the zoo. I puffed away at my cigar and I choked the kangaroo. The monkey started coughing and the tiger had to sneeze. But when the elephant said he had stopped that smoking, if you please, with the end of the old cigar, hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. I tickled up the elephant, the cape was anti-bar. Oh, what a funny tail he's got, said my wife, dear mama. That isn't the elephant tail, said I, the end of the old cigar. Where the end of the old cigar, 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 cigar. I tickled up the elephant, the gangster dance is ah. Oh, what a funny dandy got said my wife, dear mama. Let it be elephant out, said I, the enemy of the yard. Well, we must stop that because, uh, as we all know, smoking's bad for your health. That's true. So, uh, that's, that's a great song, though. The End of My Old Cigar. I don't really know what that is about. It's someone singing, I presume, about his old cigar. Anyway. Yeah, and something that's much more healthy is uh, swimming. Oh, that's a really smooth segue. Well done, Mike. And um, yes. what, I, what I didn't know until we researched this program was that uh, in 1884, the Colchester Swimming Club was established, a public bathing place created in the River Colne, and uh, it was eventually replaced by a proper outdoor pool. It was very popular, lots of competitions, including a, a long-distance race, would you believe, between Hythe and Wivenhoe, which is about two and a half miles. Oh, my gosh, how's um, he doing that? Yeah. Wild swimming, it's called now, isn't it? Wild yeah. swimming. People oh, do that. that. They is. love that, yeah. yeah. It's very popular. Get, what, what's that in disease the you can get now from rats? Is it Wild's disease? Lyme. Lyme's disease? No, no, that's yeah. where you get bitten by yeah. bugs. No. <laughs> Mind you, I wouldn't like to swim down the River Cone then. It's sort of an open sewer. A bit yeah. like today, actually. Keep your mouth shut. Of course. No ways on one. Colchester United Football Club. Uh, was formed then, but of course it was Colchester Town. But a great example of how sport developed in the 19th century. Um, Colchester Town, very briefly, founded October 1873, and for the first 60 or so years was an amateur club, not a professional club until just before the Second World War. Went through many different uh, versions and variations all over the place before finally settling in Layer Road where the army had a pitch. And uh, it was a good, good. I'm most interested that the army had a big influence in many ways. You know, yeah. they used to provide lots of uh, football teams as well. So without their support and teams and uh, uh, places to play, Colchester United would have never got anywhere really. And of course, once you've done your sport, you've done your swimming, mm-hmm. and you want to have a bit of a sing song, don't you, Mike? This is right. So, what did people do for that? Well, in the um, music halls were very popular, both established and um, trying to put put the up ones in uh, in. Pubs, because in the second half of the 19th century, Colchester was a busy industrial town, as we have heard. Uh, it was a highly successful clothing, textile, boot, and shoemaking industries uh, blossomed, as well as uh, engineering, bricklaying, and building firms. But wages were low, and uh, some factories, quite a few of them, were little be- little better than sweatshops. So you had uh, a kind of frustration with the work- working people, and you needed um, entertainment, really, uh, after long days of work. And they were provided by... Um, some by the respectable, respectable, respectable. <laughs> uh, it's easy for you to say, Mike. Oh, yeah, really? Oh, num dum. That's the old-fashioned word for uh, Colchester. <laughs> you had the respectable, elegant Le- Leslie's Music Hall, uh-huh. uh, the Headgate, which had Moorish decorations nice. and Indian hangings, the Grand Theatre, which is um, or was the Hippodrome, now the Liquid Nightclub, I think, or was. Really great. It's a great place to go, Mike. I yeah. recommend it. Well, <laughs> uh, I must say I haven't been yet, but I'm looking oh, forward to it. come on, get with yeah. it. So uh, public houses um, also uh, provided a, a wide range of attractions. The Sun Pub and Music Hall in Maidenborough Street. Uh, Maidenborough Street one had a reputation for queues outside, possibly because there were prostitutes in, on um, oh. on premises. And the famous one, though, which became a musical, was the Gaiety. 
which um, was, uh, was, was renamed Gaiety in 1996, was the Colin Campbell, um, later a working man's club, and that is on the corner of Fairfax Road. In, um, in Mersey Road. Mersey Road, just up from St. Bottles. Yeah. Well, nice uh, people live around there, don't know. It's, I'm it's, it's a very nice area. Yeah. Yeah, I think a certain person in the studio has actually uh, upgraded the... Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. raised the tone. So, what, so what sort of people were appearing in those shows? Well, the famous one was Harry Ralph, who was uh, known as Little Titch, who first appeared at 16 in 1884. He did three songs a night for 30 shillings a week. £1.50. That's a lot of money then. Yeah. Well, yeah. God. Those days, yeah. yeah. yeah it's it big money then. Uh, but he, he left uh, the, uh, the humble... Uh, Gaiety to go to uh, Drury Lane and became a star. But the, the Gaiety had um, all kinds of uh, dodgy uh, stories about it. Security bouncers refusing entry, a police raid 1921, a bit later than Victorian times, and the owners, which is quite funny, claimed they can't have us up for performances and entertainment because our performances are so bad. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. And uh, just a little bit more uh, factual uh, uh, juicy stuff is that in 1897 James Gill who was a music hall artist was summoned to court for threatening his wife Kate and another artist Rose Sidney Rose Sidney and Kate then summoned him uh, James Gill accused them of assault and um, it was a big kind of uh, verbal and uh, uh, court punch up James had to leave his wife separated from him and um, as he left, Gill threatened to rip his wife up. And that's just a couple of doors down from where someone lives that we know in the studio. That's just cool. And just the last uh, little bit of a story was Frederick Hargest um, was a Victorian drag queen whose last performance was at the Gaiety before he died, unfortunately, of cirrhosis of the liver. Well, there's a real synchronicity because I would say on television, uh, Drag Queens is one of the most popular programmes on the television, isn't it? It's is called that? RuPaul's Drag... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I have to confess something here, actually. I do a bit of drag queening myself. I haven't right. done Blinda yet. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, not I think she is, actually. But I wonder if she unlocked me out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Very quickly, then, I think we better uh, turn to George Harrison.
Susan, well done. You just need to squeeze in the, the fact that it's on Tuesdays at 8pm. Can you do that for me? Okay, so welcome back everybody to uh, Box 39 here on Cold Radio 106.6 FM. This is Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Well, you rather caught us on the hop there because we were watching Jonathan do his drag act. Yeah, uh, just... yeah, it's it's really good. I like their comments afterwards about my style of eye, eye makeup. It was, it's, it's cutting edge stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you you know if you're watching us on um, via Facebook, you can see on the um, studio camera, and and you'll be doing a bit more during the next show. Absolutely, for, for music, fantastic. <laughs> well, let's talk about education, Victorian education. We're talking about Victorian Colchester, and education obviously very very important, and uh, it's getting more and more complicated. The world in under the Victorians, and if you were illiterate, it was becoming harder and harder. Chances have become slimmer. So, in the light of this, there's a number of schools were established. There's different types of schools didn't they day schools obviously uh, had ragged schools parish schools church schools um and then they had public schools for the uh, for the few rich um some more demand for formal education for girls and women as well wasn't there well yeah I, I, this girls and women that's still fairly limited wasn't it you know but uh, it, it started to come along hmm. but it's interesting these these small inde- well, independent schools these ragged schools or church schools a very interesting uh, one in colchester uh, down east stockwell street behind uh, st martin's church lovely little building and uh, you know pupils that's about 60 pupils crammed in there but the interesting thing was bring it up to date a certain MP claimed that that was his uh, principal residence and his big five-bedroom house in London was his uh, was his uh, house he had to have to um, you know, use for his work. It was a flipping. You know, this flipping that went on? So yeah. it's true. I'm not making well, that up. So I won't to, say which party it was and you don't think it's, it's not the thing so, you think it was. So to attend these schools, you turn up with a penny or whatever for the week? Well, sometimes you're free. Some were free. Oh yeah, some were free. Some you you pay pay for. I mean, varied enormously. I think. What, what age would you be at these schools? Well, to the most twelve, I would think. You yeah. Know, because you went. I mean, there was no statutory age age range, as it were, in the early days. So many would turn up until twelve. I mean, there men so many had to go out to work anyway to support their parents and working. It was a pretty awful situation. And was anyone sort of overseeing these schools? Were there any sort of equivalent of Ofsted back in the day? Well I don't not in those days. It wasn't until really eighteen seventy where there was a education act was brought in to uh, actually sort of uh, set up a much more systematic system um, and set up uh, local boards of education to regularise things and raise certain standards and children there had to attend were between 5 and 12 years old so it was a, a new system and this is where local authorities really came in on this and started working in conjunction with school uh, church schools which was at all very strong as well but um, they uh, it, gradually the local education well it was the boards it wasn't a bit later local education authorities are set up which meant Colchester Borough Council and they're responsible for the uh, provision of uh, of schooling for that age group yeah it was a very, very important role in that um eventually gradually soon it became free anyway so obviously it's very important a very important step forward yeah. I think one of the great things about it, you can see the architectural uh, heritage of, of the school building. Magnificent red brick buildings. Schools like uh, Wilson Marriage, which is now a further education or, or, or a part-time education uh, centre. Or, or there's Hamilton Road School, yeah. which is rather nice there. If you look on the outside, they've got cent- uh, entrance for infants, an entrance for girls, an entrance for boys. Yeah. They're carefully segregated. Yeah. St John's Green School, wonderful, yeah. wonderful so, pieces of architecture. So from the 1890s, say, through to the First World War, the uh, school, the buildings became more airy, didn't they? Where they had oh, proper yeah. gym uh, facilities, canteens. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, those canteens for the free school meals would have been what? where a lot of children, was the only place where they got decent food. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, again, that's... Uh, 
it's another step forward right across the board you know, local authorities Colchester mm. Council was like many around the council around the uh, around the country were providing these sort of basic basic needs which sadly mm. have gradually slivered away in the last 30 years so you know so far we've seen then if we're looking at Victorian Colchester we've you'd say that Colchester was getting better and better under the Victorians wouldn't you well, I would say so in many ways. I'm not sure about working conditions. There is one thing, yeah. you know, what, what, you know, what the working hours that men had to work, um, underpaid and so on. I mean, they had industrial action in, in, in Colchester factories and so on. So in some ways, in providing basic facilities like, like that, schooling and uh, water supply and so on, that's a definite step forward. Not quite sure necessarily step forward in the working life and working conditions. So that was a different uh, matter altogether, I think. Yeah. So playing uh, Work Hard, Play Hard, this is a, a song that was famous at the time. Uh, it's regarding quite a famous pub. Come, come, come and make eyes at me down at the old bull and bush. That's wonderful, and I'm delighted that uh, Mike was telling us, listening to that song, about all the evening he spent on Hampstead Heath with humming that, that song to himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, he, he only went to church after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> anyway, let's try and get back to education. Now, um, there is a school that Colchester is very famous for across the country called the Colchester Grammar School. We're only going to briefly talk about this, but Colchester Grammar School was going, and it might be a bit confusing to think, well, how come there were these day schools and these state schools and these church schools? How did Colchester Grammar School fit in? And um, you know, we're all aware of Ofsted, a sort of modern system of monitoring schools. Well, because Colchester Grammar School had been set up by an endowment of money from the king, the monarch, Henry VIII, and from his daughter, Elizabeth I, the government did used to monitor these sort of government-financed schools for the rich and the powerful. Oh. And back in 1869, they wrote a report on Colchester Grammar School, which I, I had a little bit of my homework I, I had a yeah. look at. Yeah. So, uh, um, so a few things about Colchester Grammar School. Uh, they used to take, even back then, some poorer children who passed a sort of an exam. They'd take 20 of them, um, and those children be chosen by the mayor. The mayor would come round to these day schools we're talking about and put forward and they'd do a little test. And if they were good enough, the mayor would say, you're in. So uh, there, was, yeah. there was that. Um, but the rest of them basically had to pay. And uh, their test to get in was, can you read a little bit? Can you spell? And can you write in a fair hand? Yeah. Yeah. And above all, they loved a bit of um, religion, a bit of religious instruction. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of them, they're the big subjects. But they also studied German and French. Was it, was it true that, in terms of religion, the trustees could not be dissenters? They no. heirs of the Puritans, such as the Quakers, Baptists, or Presbyterians? Yeah, so dissenters was anyone that wasn't absolutely sort of mainstream Church of England, wasn't it? And oh, if you, uh, absolutely. If you strayed from the path... Well, heaven yeah. forbid if you're a Catholic. Oh, well. Well, absolutely yeah. no chance there. Yeah. But they did a bit of natural science. The occasional lecture... You've got to realise in 1869, yeah. uh, natural science would, was in the heaven 
heavy competition with unnatural science, wasn't it? The sort of uh, the creation, the creation story, oh, I wasn't it? So. Yeah, you know. So you've got uh, you've got to sort of you've got to get through that sort of uh, that rather difficult uh, combination. They did a bit of maths. They, some of their maths was called commercial mathematics. Uh, I oh, think was, that was well, interesting. I think accountancy, I think we were. Oh, call I that. suppose so. Yes, <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit of algebra, a bit of geometry, and of course geography. All you really needed was a pink pencil to colour in a world map with the bits <laughs> what we owned. That's right. I think was yes. the uh, attitude in those days. Three yeah. quarters pink. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, they did a little bit of English language and literature. They'd study uh, uh, Shakespeare. Nowadays, I suppose you'd study um, books about Shakespeare written by prime ministers, that sort of thing. Um, a bit of history was taught. Roman history they loved. Mm. Yeah. They love the old Roman. The other thing is, of course, this, this teaching of Latin, because to get into, I'm sure it was, it was that time, if you wanted to get to university, Oxford or Cambridge, you had to learn Latin. Yeah. I remember when I was at school, well, school, not, not then, but uh, it was still a situation, particularly if you wanted to get into Oxford and Cambridge, you had to have Latin. It only really died out in the 1960s, so it's a sort of big hangover, really. Well, I have to say, I do have a national qualification in Latin, and uh, I studied to get that. I studied Caesar's Gallic Wars, Volume 2, The Rape of the Sabine Women. It's always been of use to me. Yeah, but that's never done you any harm, has it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's done me any good, but, you know, it's never done me any harm. Uh, yeah, so they... It no was comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they, soon we find out about um, punishments, because um, oh, yeah. in the school I went to, the uh, cane was used, even if you were late. But apparently at the uh, grammar school, um, detentions and corporal punishment was only handed out by uh, the headmaster. Or well, rather, well, the headmaster was the only one authorised to beat students, and it had to be done privately. Yeah, well, why the private, private bit? Oh, I'm a bit worried about that. So, yeah. you were, what school was this? You were thrashed it, Mike. Well, this was the Mile End House School in Portsmouth. Oh, um, right. Okay, oh, yeah. Cool. These yeah. Are, we used to have the cane at my school I went to. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That was in private. Seems <laughs> incredibly uh, archaic now, doesn't it? But there you go. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure it's very painful. People used to cry. In fact, sometimes they'd cry me a river. Oh. Over you, over you, 
still have the box open here on box 39 your favorite magazine of music community and humor and we are coming live from the mighty studio one overlooking the whole of wivenhoe and beyond and i'm bill lawrence and i'm with mike harwood and jonathan pearsall and we've been investigating victoria culture so we're so grateful for you we've had quite a lot of emails in fact our email system is almost overheated uh the first one there mike yeah, the, who's the first one from i think we've had over a hundred uh listeners queries for this program but we've picked out uh, three or so and the first one is from Daryl Bass of Gusset Hill St. Osef's and he says what was the Colchester earthquake? Well the Colchester earthquake was of 1884 it measured 4.6 on the Richter magnitude scale and uh, the effects were found across England France and Belgium but more uh, locally in um, Colchester where the church lion um, spire of the church almost collapsed I think and uh, there was uh, I think some people died in um, was it uh, Peldon yeah well. and I think maybe one or two I'm not sure about Wivenhoe but there were certainly a lot of people injured in Wivenhoe and houses were you, damaged I was uh, I wasn't me no I was <laughs> I might have been talking about but I wasn't around <laughs> It was a very quick earthquake, like my birth. It took only about 20 seconds. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, not many people know about it, you know. So uh, there's a little bit of Victorian history. Now, uh, there's one on the list there from... Uh, this one, going to get you to answer this one, Jonathan. It's from Eggsy from East Hill in Colchester. And he asks, why was there an army garrison built in the middle of Colchester around Abbey Fields in the 1850s? Why was it built? Well, hi, Eggsy. I like that question because uh, Col- the Colchester army and Colchester has always been important to us. Well, the reason for having that built in the 1850s was as the response was in the in the Napoleonic period. A large army camp was established Established in in Colchester uh, because of the threat of Napoleon, and also too during the 1850s at the time of the Crimean War, because the best, quickest way to get uh, uh, soldiers across to uh, uh, the Europe, if you wanted to do that, would go to Harwich via Harwich across to what is now modern-day Belgium. And it's just generally a very good leaping, jumping-off point to get across to the continent, and also protect London if there was an invasion. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and eventually, what was it, just to be a, a temporary arrangement became permanent, and it's still a very a permanent uh, system. I think it's the Powers now have their headquarters in uh, in uh, in Colchester. Some very flashy modern uh, uh, modern um, uh, accommodation has been built. And they're really good now, I so understand. But originally, when the, the soldiers would be intended accommodation, but. Um, Due to the campaigning actions of reformers such as Florence Nightingale's, not Nightingale, sorry, Florence Nightingale, 
they were, had improved heating, ventilation and sanitary arrangements for the new barracks. Uh, definitely an improvement and um, something that's been carried on to the present day. So that's sort that's of, a, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant answer. I hope that answers your question, Eggsy, which also fits in with uh, uh, an email from Ron and Reg from uh, Brightlingsea. And Ron and Reggie say, our mum was from a German family. She told us there used to be 10,000 German soldiers billeted in Colchester during the Crimean War as part of the British-German Legion. Is this true? And uh, it is actually true, Ron and Reggie, that German soldiers used to be recruited to fight for Britain in the Crimean War, and there was 10,000 of them billeted in Colchester garrison. Many even married local women. (laughs) Never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. So, actually, there are a few German uh, graves on there. Wow. Oh, what grave, really? Have you where, seen it? Where are they? Well, yeah, in where? the uh, 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 in different parts of the uh, the um, the main cem- cemetery. Goldstone no, the cemetery. church cemeteries. Church cemeteries. Really? Yeah. Well, I never knew that. Yeah. Well, look, thank you very much for sending in your emails. We might get a, a chance for one or two more before the end of the show. Uh, but meantime, let's uh, let's listen to Nora. Thank you, Nora. We had to cut you short because we're running out of time. It's been such a great show and we've got so much that we want to get through. Uh, we haven't got time for, to uh, talk about Mango Dread from Shrub End who asked us what Wivenhoe was like in Victorian times. And Mike, we haven't got time for, us to, for you to tell us what it's like because uh, you remember it well. Absolutely. But uh, we have got time. Uh, Donna from Norwich, one of our regular correspondents, uh, she's just sent in an email. Uh, she says, last year I went on staycation in Colchester with my new neighbour, Rory. Uh, we both love Jumbo, the iconic water tower. And uh, when we got back to Norwich, Rory built a replica model of Jumbo. <laughs> uh, Rory couldn't wait to get hammering as soon as his shift finished. And I've never known him so happy as he was each evening, sweating his away as he made it grow bigger and bigger. Now with just a quick spit and polish and a rub i can get rory's jumbo to shine whenever i want <gasps> so that's fantastic thank you donna from norwich and uh this has been box 39 the magazine of music and uh, community humor and chat and we've been talking about victorian uh, colchester with our co-presenters mike harwood and jonathan pearsall so you know victorian britain what a great triumph hey mike uh, jonathan well, absolutely, I'm up for them. Uh, local democracy? 
Well, that's that's been a great period of local democracy, and sadly, it's been gradually eroded over over the last decades. Lost all the facility, all the provision of uh, services, been undermined by more provision by central government, uh, underfunding, and so on. So, what was I think was a very great period of uh, his uh, in the history of Colchester in the late nineteenth centuries, sadly been dissipated. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Well, it uh, needs to be recreated because, um, you know, we, we need to celebrate the positive things. That, yeah, uh, absolutely. That people yeah. Do. And uh, also remember some of the not-so-good things and learn from it. Yeah, history's all around us, isn't it? And we don't have to say just because it's in the past, it's no good. Well, that's really? absolutely right, yeah. I mean, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some of the things Colchester Borough do, uh, does now is terrific, you know, in, yeah. in, in part of that great tradition under straightened circumstances and good for them. Yeah. yeah. So history is all around us. Um, unless we understand our past, you know, we can't understand or know who we are here in our present. So our present comes from our past, doesn't it? Absolutely. So love your history because history's got soul. History's got soul. There must be a song about that. Yeah. History's got soul. So, from high up here in a Studio One on the fourth floor of Cone Radio Towers, looking out over the full and fertile lands of North East Essex, it's time for us to close Box 39 once more. Be seeing you. Uh, be seeing you. Be seeing you. is a guppy production for Cohen Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience.